This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. This episode is being recorded, uh, first of all, from exile from the diaspora. I'm actually in New York at the moment. And it's also being recorded on the 3rd of Elul, which is the uh, Yom Ptira, the Yurtzeit, uh, the anniversary of when Harav Avram Yitzchak Cohen Kuk left our world. Uh, so this episode is, is really uh, dedicated to the Lilui Nishmat, the elevation of the soul of Harav Avram Yitzchak ben Harav Shlomo Zalman HaKohen. Uh, and uh, joining me on this episode, being that I'm here in the exile, is uh, Rav Hart Levine, the Director of Education and Leadership for Mizrahi USA, uh, the Rav of the uh, base community up in Washington Heights, uh, and actually somebody I've known since he was a student at the University of Pennsylvania. We did a little bit of work together back then, and then he started Heart to Heart, and uh, and that merged into Mizrahi, but we'll really let Hart tell his own story. Hart, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Yehuda. Thanks for uh, having me on, especially on uh, on this very auspicious day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first of all, maybe you can share with our listeners a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your work, your journey, at least since, you know, since I've known you, since you were a student at Penn until up to what you're doing today. Sure, sure. Um, so I, I grew up probably not so far from where you did down in uh, down in the village of, of New York City. Uh, I grew up in a modern Orthodox home, went to, uh, you know, grew up, grew up in the system, as, as some people say, right. uh, sort of in a, I guess what I consider a regular, I mean, I guess there weren't that many other modern Orthodox people growing up in the village, but for me, that was my regular life. Um, went to Jewish day school, Jewish summer camp, all uh, uh, um, Orthodox synagogue. And it was all sort of just like, I guess just regular. Um, and then after I finished um, high school, I went to take a gap year in Israel. And I had a transformational time there. And I think part of what it was for me was I was exposed to a whole new way of looking at the world, looking at Judaism, not just of just like, you know, something you do, something you don't do, but actually something about like changing the world. Um, the Torah. Yeah, Torah. And, and, and it was something about it. I learned Torah in, in my Jewish day school. I finished I finished learning all of Gemara when I was 17. I, I, I learned a lot of Torah, but this was different. Um, Revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. It was something being in Israel, learning the Torah in Israel, learning specific Torah. And I learned specifically, uh, I guess we'll talk about this a little bit further on about the Torah of Rav Cook really impacted me. Um, and so that, that really changed my trajectory. So I, uh, I was in college at uh, UPenn uh, studying engineering and I started getting involved in a bunch of things. I got involved with you doing a lot of um, Israel activism work and sort of changing the conversations around Israel. Um, I got involved, and, but like really what I got involved in is also um, sort of thinking about how to reimagine Jewish community, uh, reaching out to Jews who were disconnected, uh, not part of the Jewish community at all, and finding ways to connect with them. And for me, that was that was all part of the same the same Torah. Um, I also, um, sort of incidentally, or probably not incidentally, I also gave a shear in Rough Cook um, for four years in college. Uh, when I got to college, there was there was a senior who was running a course in a, a little, not a course, like a little class in Rough Cook in the Hillel uh, Tuesday nights. Um, and I used to go and, and I was so excited that someone was in and one other uh, participant. And after one semester, after a few months, the, the person leading it graduated. So, so I turned to the other person and I'm like, okay, who's, who's going to lead it now? And he's like, I'm not doing it. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do it. 
Wow. So uh, for the next the next three and a half years, I, I taught a weekly class in, in Rev Cook. Were there any specific texts you focused it, it wasn't, on? It wasn't one specific text. Um, I tried to do it thematically, uh, thinking about themes that are on my mind. Let's say around these times of year, so I would, I would, I would look at uh, Teshuvah, the process of returning. Rev Cook has a lot of beautiful, uh, re really different ideas about that. Before Pesach, we, we talk about freedom. Mm. Um, and. I mean, sometimes I I, I went through the Sidor for, for part of it, or I've cooked the whole commentary, or there was a commentary that was put together that he wrote on, on prayer. Um, so that was one thing that I used, but otherwise it was really, um, actually I found in the in the library at University of Pennsylvania, they had a whole selection of Rev Cook's books. They they actually had, they had like anthologies, they had, they had indexes of, of Rev Cook's books. So actually it was a goldmine. Um, so I, I, I got to take out all those books and use them. There weren't so many other people using them. Wow. Um, and so when I graduated college, I decided I was not going to pursue bioengineering, but instead I wanted to sort of uh, um, try and take my talents and my, my passion and serve the Jewish people. Um, and so I worked um, first independently and then, then with the OU for, for, for a while, um, working on basically expanding this model of doing a mostly Jewish outreach. Uh, which we called Heart to Heart, which was around uh, uh, um, students sharing their love for Judaism with, with their peers on campus. Um, and that really took off over the last 10 years. Um, and then just, just last year, um, I was given the opportunity to, to take a position with, with Mizrahi uh, to try and take some of the same models I was doing previously um, and, and, uh, and, and do it through the lens of Mizrahi. Um, and, and also around, around six, seven years ago, while I was living in the Heights, I, I, I was doing smicha at, at, at YU, uh, training to be a rabbi. And I ended up sort of by accident, kind of um, starting a community, it's like sort of starting a shul with some friends. Um, and so on the side, I've been I've been also uh, sort of running that community for the past seven years. It's amazing. That really sounds like a lot. Uh, I try. I I, I try. Um, I mean, it's not it's not as much as I could be doing, but but I try. But thank you. Okay. Well. Um, I mean, I have a lot of questions. I'm very much, even though I'm born and raised in New York City, I didn't so much grow up in the Jewish world and I very much feel like a visitor to it you know when I come here from Israel and I spent time in Jewish community here in the United States I, I very much experienced myself as a visitor also when I was in university uh, I was a sociology major so I might take a very sociological approach to uh, you know some of what I experience you know, I tend to maybe use that lens when trying to understand the communities I visit. Uh, so I guess a, a question I would have, because you've been, you know, working here. Uh, when did you graduate college? Probably at least, you know, over 10 years ago, right? Yeah, I graduated um, 2010. When, okay. So, um, so, so Yeah, 11 years ago. So you, you have over a decade of Jewish education experience under your belt, right? Outreach teaching shiurim, uh, you know, organizing communities, uh, starting a shul, like th that's a lot of experience for somebody your age. And one of the, you know, at the vision movement, one of the things that we really focus on is this idea of, first of all, being a participant in Jewish history, like actually taking an active role, seeing ourselves as characters in the story mm -hmm. of Israel. And also like thinking about what it means to advance Jewish history today, meaning really thinking about like what are the goals of the Jewish people, what's already been achieved, what's left to accomplish, what obstacles are standing in the way, and what can we do 
to be characters in the story of smashing those obstacles. And I guess one of the questions I have for you is how relevant is are those conversations or is that consciousness to the Jewish community, you know, here in in, the, in New York or in the United States more broadly as you experience it? Like, are those conversations relevant or are people just having a whole different set of conversations today? I think I see part of my mission to make that conversation relevant. I'll, I'll tell you one example. There, there, there's a song, uh, I, don't, I, don't know if, uh, I don't know if you know, there's an Israeli singer, Hanan Ben-Ari, who wrote a song recently called Cholem uh, Kmo um, Yosef, a dreamer like, like, like Joseph. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with the song, but it's, um, it's basically a song, it's, well, it's a song, it's a pop song, but it's, but it's about how, how he and how really all of us are sort of like playing out the narratives of our forefathers, of characters in the Torah. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like a pop song that, that, that sort of speaks to this, this, this teaching that you're talking about. And I've shared this, this, this song with, uh, with people in, in my community, uh, people I've been learning with, people on different journeys. Um, and probably a dozen of them have told me that they cannot stop listening to this song. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think the reason why is not just because it's a good song, it's because that, that, that idea that we're, we're living out the stories from the Torah and Jewish history, and we're following in the footsteps, and we're and and sometimes carving new paths in, in, in Jewish history. Um, I think it's such a powerful uh, message, and I think it's one that that people, maybe especially in the diaspora Jewish community, people don't often get that that perspective. Right. I think that's a big challenge. I guess one of the questions I have for you is, to what extent, even when we speak about Jewish identity or you know, issues taking place in Israel. I'm not sure how central those issues are to the lives and conversations of, of diaspora Jews. But I imagine, I see that part of the challenge is that all of these conversations are taking place within the ideological context of the United States and Western civilization and the political divides here. And I think it's very easy when living here to get caught up in that ideological paradigm. Yeah, for sure. That's um, that is the reality. Like we do live in America. Like I think if I think if we were living in Israel, in some ways, it would, it would be a lot easier to see ourselves living out Jewish history. Um, but 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 actually, I, I I like thinking about that. Actually, a lot of Jewish history, even even stories in the Torah, uh, didn't take place in Israel. Um, a lot of it happened in the desert before Israel, after Israel. Even Avram spent some time, a lot of most of his life actually outside of Israel. Um, so it's like a. So it, it, it's actually also really interesting. I mean, even even just like, uh, going to Rav Cook for a second. Rav Cook was someone who, he, he land of Israel was his was his everything. Um, he spent significant parts of his life. His, his definitely his childhood. He spent some years during during World War One outside of Israel. Yeah. Um, and and he actually wrote a lot of his texts. Uh, he wrote some sort of some core texts when he was outside of Israel. Even when he was outside of Israel, and even the stories in the Torah which happened outside of Israel, they're all written in the shadow or in in, in the context in relation to to Israel. Right. Um, and so I think for us here, we we definitely exist within America and there's American constructs and and you know political sociological constructs that we're part of. Um, but I think it's important and, and something I stress is sort of seeing ourselves in the shadow, not not necessarily in a, in a not just in a negative way, but just sort of we're living in in relation to to Israel. Right. What I see is there's an advantage a diaspora Jew has over an Israeli. Um, maybe that advantage is only ever fully actualized. I, I, maybe it can be partially actualized, but I, I think it's only fully actualized uh, when making Aliyah because it's an advantage of actually like 
first of all, making the choice and coming to and saying like, I want to be part of this. And that's a choice that I think Israelis don't ever get to make. Uh, for the most part, unless, you know, they yeah. Irida or whatever. Yeah. But for the most yeah. part, they're like born into it. And, and therefore, you know, the passion for it, the passion to achieve it, the passion to uh, aspire towards it is something that is essentially absent from the experience. Uh, whereas many of our leaders throughout history, many of our great leaders and heroes were, as you said, Hebrews came from outside the land at a certain point in their life. Right. And, and I think it also adds perspective. Sometimes when we're coming from without, we're able to have a perspective that might be broader than people who had spent all their times in the land. Meaning when, when one is in the land, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, there's a risk of becoming overly provincial or, or having a narrow perspective on events taking place around us. Whereas those of us who come from outside kind of have this balance hopefully of being able to see a better picture from without and then come and be a participant within yeah yeah i'll tell you this this story um when i was in yeshiva they took they took all of us to to tel aviv for a shabbat um and we went to tour all of the all of the abandoned synagogues i think there used to be something like 700 900 uh, um shuls in tel aviv and now the, i don't know six or seven hundred of them are now empty um and there there's this real they're, they're talking about this real vacuum for sort of like re, re, reinvigorating religious life in Tel Aviv. Um, and they're saying that what we need is, is we need religious Jews who, I mean, uh, Tel Aviv used to be a religious city. That's where our cook um, sort of got it. And so they were saying that we need religious Jews moving to Tel Aviv. And they said, we don't need um, Israeli religious Jews. We need Jews who grew up in New York City to move to Tel Aviv because they have this perspective from the outside of growing up in a, in a hop you know, metropolis who have the perspectives, the, the vantage points that actually would be the best fit for moving to Tel Aviv. Um, just like an example of this. The average Tel Aviv Israeli would be able to respect and appreciate uh, rabbis coming from, you know, cities like New York or London, etc. Uh, I could see that. Right. Although in my experience, you know, there's a lot of infatuation with those places and where at the same time, sometimes there's a little bit of, I don't know what the right word is, but certainly a critical attitude towards the Jews who leave all that to come to Israel. Yeah, yeah, I know you're right, yeah. Like, why'd you leave that to come here? Uh, but but yeah, it could be right. specifically those Jews who are able to connect them, like right, right. societies. That's definitely a strong point. Uh, so, you know, moving to, you know, Torah of Cook, you said you, you know, you had been learning Torah your whole life. You said you finished Shas at the age of 17, which is in and of itself very impressive. But then when you came to Yeshiva Rakotel in Jerusalem after high school, you discovered essentially a new Torah. You discovered, you know, I guess what we'll call Torah of Cook, like the Torah, you know, from a more, I would argue, more holistic perspective, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but how would you define the difference between that Torah and the Torah that you had learned previously? Sure, right. So definitely part of it's around uh, uh, holistic. I I think for me that the the biggest difference is um, it was a Torah that talked about redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, it talked about sort of like what our what our great potential is to bring God into this world and sort of change change the whole trajectory of the, the entire universe. Um, as opposed to here's here's the mitzvot you can do and here's sort of like your 
God exists within the sort of limited confines of sort of halakhic observance and, and halakhic study. Um, and this was a and this was a this was a Torah that that seemed not not that in America you don't talk about uh, you know tikkun olam and achinu um, kol and sort of these also like big ideas of fixing the world. But in but this 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 Torah of, of Rav Cook in particular just seemed to have a much grander vision that 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 was that that was that I was a part of or or that I or or that I should have been a part of. Right. It's a Torah of action and a and a positive Torah, meaning not, not a Torah. It's not just about like rules and ritual, but a Torah of purpose that really that that's really being taught. Right. In the yeah. Text. I, I think that what speaks to me, you know, the Torah of Rav Kook, it's really being taught within the context of Israel's historic mission, meaning it's a mission oriented Torah, like like we as the people of Israel. Yeah job to do we have a yeah. mission to accomplish in human history and, and for the benefit of all of creation for the benefit of all of humanity uh really and that's something that's simultaneously very strongly and deeply i guess for lack of a better word nationalist but but even more powerfully universalist yeah yeah right, right. interesting how Cook is both very nationalist and also like very very universal and for him those two weren't weren't contradictory at all, yeah. at all. I, I mean, it's, um, in fact, he has an essay in Orota uh, Tchia Yutchet in the 18th chapter of Orota Tchia. Rav Kook teaches that there are these three forces: you know, the holy, the kodesh, the enoshut, the universalist, and the haoma, uh, the nationalist, that are all equally valid expressions of Hebrew identity and are all equally crucial to Israel being able to fulfill our mission. So I think for Rav Kook, it was just a given that we need to find a perfect balance between Torah, national consciousness, and universal aspiration. Universal, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like what Amiso is here to do, and but that the universal is achieved through the national. And uh, like, meaning, especially when you're coming back from the dead, you know, we, Rav Cook was really writing at a time when Israel was in the process of transitioning really from gas form to solid form again after 2000 years of exile. And um, very few nations have the challenge of having to like rebuild themselves before they can fulfill their mission. You know, you, like you have to be a little bit of a nationalist to build the nation if you see that nation right. as the vehicle to universal redemption. For sure, yeah. I think sometimes we sort of like, we sort of stop at just, just being nationalist, but Rav Cook said that's that's actually part of sort of a grander vision also. Right, that, that's actually where I see, uh, unfortunately, where I see a lot of his students kind of, and students of his students, and I and I consider myself among them, but, but I think that the Rav Cook world is a little bit stuck today not fully knowing how to transition to the universalism and not even being sure that it's time. I mean, for me, it's a given that like we've already, like the the nationalism has accomplished everything it's meant to accomplish before it transitions. Uh, like for example, I'll just use this uh, for a Michelle for, a, for an example. You know, our three first kings historically, uh, you know, you have Shaul, David and Shlomo. Uh, Shaul is maybe what we would call today a Zionist. At risk of being anachronistic, we'll call Shaul a Zionist. Meaning, <laughs> Shaul is primarily concerned with 
the security of Israel, basically. Defending Israel from enemies, making sure Israel is strong enough to defend itself and be secure. Uh, but Shaul doesn't seem concerned with spiritual fulfillment on a national level. Uh, David, on the other hand, the next king, really wants Israel to fulfill it, to represent a certain culture, to represent a certain set of values. He very much wants to build a temple, meaning that David wants to build a temple. He, he wants this kingdom to mean something, to represent something, to, to project something to the world, but he can't do it. I, I think David is what we can call the national religious camp. You know, today is even our national religious camp in Israel today. Um, but it's only Shlomo who really reaches the level of universalism uh, who is able to build that temple. Because Shlomo is, um, he, he's transcended the national. He's beyond the national. Uh, but, but he's only able to transcend the national and get beyond it because of the achievements of his father, because of the because who came before him. Yeah. So, so I think that that's where we're stuck. I think the Rav Cook camp today is very much like David, but we need to become like Shlomo. We need to we need to make that leap. And the question is, how do we do it? I think a lot of the work we do at Vision is really about figuring out what that transition looks like, what ideas we need to kind of struggle with or teach ourselves, you know, engage with uh, in order to add a necessary component of real deep universalism to the already kind of united national religious uh, expressions of our identity. To, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's really the challenge. I, I would say, you know, I, I'd say it like this. When Hook was writing that essay, you know, about the three forces, you know, he says, he warns, he says, even though these three forces need to eventually get together, we need to have Israel's ultimate identity needs to be the full expression of Torah, national consciousness and universalism. They can't get together too early. If they try to get together too early, they're going to water each other down, uh, dilute each other, and that's not good. And it's interesting, you know, it, you're part of Mizrahi now, and the Mizrahi movement, or what we'll call religious Zionism, at that time existed, and it was trying to create, you know, religious Zionism, which was kind of less religious in the Haredim and less nationalist than even Mapai, than even like the labor Zionists. You know, in fact, in the 1967 Six-Day War, when Levi Eshkol's cabinet was debating whether or not to liberate the old city of Jerusalem, it was the Labour Party ministers who were arguing for the conquest and the religious Zionist ministers who were arguing against the conquest. Uh, but after that, meaning after the liberation of Jerusalem, I think something happened. I actually think it's connected. I think because of the liberation of Jerusalem, because of the Jewish people's return to Jerusalem, uh, suddenly this new national religious kind of exploded onto the scene. Um, and that became what we call today, I don't know, Khardal or, you know, Kharedilumi or whatever, you know, Gushemunim, whatever terminology you want to use. But uh, but basically what I would call this kind of like vanguard, ultra-nationalist, ultra-religious camp. Um, but it's still not complete. It might be a vanguard and it might be the most developed, you know, sector of Israeli society with the most revolutionary potential, but it's still missing the universalism and it's still that balance in order to really fulfill its role. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I It's interesting. We're part of Mizrahi and there's a Mizrahi movement in Israel. Mizrahi in America is probably like a few steps behind that. Like, I don't I don't think we're even in the David camp. I think maybe we're in the Shaul camp and we're trying to trying yeah. to bring people toward, toward the David camp. Shaul the right. Yeah, right, right. 
Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, still, still Yosef, still Mashiach ben Yosef in a way. Like Zionism. Yeah. Still yeah. Zionism. Uh, yeah. No, that's correct. That, that's important to clarify. You know, the the way I personally, the way I understand Rav Cook's Torah, uh, I actually this might be a controversial statement depending on who's listening, but but I would actually make the argument, and I I mean I would trace it historically, but I would make the argument that the Torah of Cook is actually not the Torah of the Pharisees. Not the Torah of the Perushim, but the Torah of the Kanaim, the Torah of the Zealots. And what I mean by that is I actually believe that um, the Torah of the Zealots was kind of driven underground after the destruction of Jerusalem. Meaning that we, like the Jewish people and most of our rabbis, had a very strong interest in convincing the Romans that we weren't with them. You know, like those... That right. fringe group created all the problems. That extremists, yeah. Because the Roman Empire was really trying to decide whether or not they're going to punish all the Jews for what happened, and the and of course the Rabbanim wanted Romans to not do that, uh, which makes sense. Not to save themselves. But, but right. then, like a generation later, Rabbi Akiva started another revolt, and um, the Bar Kokhba revolt, which failed in 135. And then his student, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Rashpi, continued to agitate against the Romans until he was driven into hiding. You know, he had to, him and his son had to go, you know, hide in a cave for cave. And and that's where he got a new teacher, Eliyahu Navi. And the the result of that is the Zohar Kadosh. So I I would actually argue that the Zohar Kadosh is the Torah of the Kanaim, but it was mm. inaccessible to us. To the masses, it was definitely accessible to the giants. Meaning, Rabbi Yehuda Levi could understand it, the Ramban could understand it, the Ramchal and the Maharal of Prague and the Vilna Gon could understand it, and the Hasidim, like the Baal Shem Tov and his Hasidim, did something else with it. They kind of turned it into a psychology. But the other Gedolim I mentioned really maintained it almost as a philosophy. Um, but it wasn't until Rav Kook that it got unpacked. Meaning that when we started to return to our land, that Torah. Right. Right. And it was only in 1967 when we returned to Jerusalem that that Torah became accessible to the masses again. Meaning, remember that like Rav Cook was not religious Zionism. Like Rav Cook was something else. You know, he had a few stories. Right, right, right. You know, Rav Arya Levin and the and the the Nazir and Rav Tziuda, of course, his son and and Rav Harlap. But but he wasn't like it wasn't like religious Zionism was Rav Cook. Religious Zionism was trying to combine. Torah and Zionism, and Rav Kook was something else. And I think <laughs> right, right. what Rav Kook was really holding on to was that Torah of Rabbi Yudha Levi and the Ramban and the Ramchal and the Maharal and the Gra and, and the Zohar Kadosh. And I think it was only in 1967 that Torah became accessible to the masses again. That suddenly we could all we could all understand it. We can all appreciate it, and and that is really when all these institutions kind of like blossomed all over the country, and suddenly had like this real uh, interaction. But it's only in the last couple of years, and I guess this is where your work becomes relevant. It's only in the last few years that diaspora Jews have kind of discovered Rav Cook. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Meaning, I'm sure there are people here who've been learning it, probably like in, in the more like, uh, you know, like the elite, the people who, who had that that um, that inner fire themselves. Um, de- definitely through like the work of, of translating it. But I think also maybe like this generation, I think is maybe 
maybe I would say like within the Jewish world in America, this this generation now is a little bit more searching, a little bit more sort of like looking for something beyond. Um, and so maybe that's also why Rev Cook's Torah speaks to it. And I'll say also that that I think it, it, I've actually seen that that Rev Cook's Torah is not just for the elite, for the you know the, the highly religious, highly nationalist people. Um, I've I've taught Rev Cook to people who who didn't speak a word of Hebrew, who had never learned Jewish text before. Um, just just the other week I did that. Um, with people who didn't know, who had basically no Jewish background, and there's something about Rev Cook's uh, depth of Torah that. That also speaks to them because they were also searchers and seekers. Yeah, I, I know. I, I think you're correct today. I, I think post 1967, something changed in our national soul that allows that Torah to be accessible to the masses again. So today we can all access it, and and it's even being translated into English all the time. Meaning, there are translations of it available, and and Shurim online, and you are teaching people with very little background, and I'm teaching people with very little background, meaning today it's accessible. But I assume that if we tried to teach Rav Cook in 1966, people wouldn't know what we're talking about. Right, right. Right, maybe Rav Shlomo Karbach taught, taught a little bit of Rav Cook, but even now, he, he, he taught mostly, mostly Hasidi with a little more, more, more pop psychology. Um, right. Rav Cook came a little bit later, yeah. But I think now's the time. Yeah. yeah, no, now is certainly a time, and, and it's really exciting that you are positioned, meaning you have your own kila, you have a leadership role at Mizrahi, you're running educational programs, you are really being given a megaphone, you're really being given the tools to like amplify your voice and to really spread these teachings much further and louder. Yeah, that, I mean, it's, I uh, I see that as a real as a real privilege. Um, I don't know, I don't know if I'm ready for it, but I think like the. I don't know if Cook has this line where he says like the Vidoria Kum, I don't know, like sort of like almost like the generation will demand it. Um, right. So this, I'm not saying everyone has to do this. I think I think sort of the generation, this I don't know, young generation, um, exile generation, I think is is sort of demanding it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm I'm definitely happy to be part of this process. Right now, you know, earlier in the conversation, there were just some uh, some words you used that I took note of because I guess. Maybe the conversations are different in Israel than, than here. I know that for us, you, you know, we tend to apply a lot of post-colonial ideas to Jewish identity, and we and we tend to look at our our experiences um, over the last few thousand years through a post-colonial lens, especially, you know, especially because we're really tasked in this generation with rebuilding Hebrew civilization within the context of the 21st century. Like that's a huge project, and that's a that, that's an enormous project. And requires us to really dig deep, to really understand what we're doing, understand what happened to us, understand what we're looking to build, like what we're trying to create here. Like these are all really crucial questions. So, you know, some of the terminology that you used, um, I, I know it's very common terminology here, but I'm just curious if you think it's helpful to challenge it or if Jews here are just not ready for that. Like even talking about, even the word Judaism, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like the word Judaism to me, it feels like such a relatively recent social construct and like, like as if we're a religion alongside Islam and Christianity and whatever. Saying, saying like a religion, right. Yeah. Um, right, right. Like, like you, you won't find that word in the Tanakh anywhere or in the Gemara anywhere. Like it's, it's not uh, it's right. how our ancestors understood our Right, for sure. Yeah. And that's definitely um, a byproduct of living in a society where it's, where it's majority Christian and mm -hmm. that's sort of how society is aligned. Right, right. 
and and even orthodox um, like like denominations you know they have methodists and protestants and catholics so we have to have reform and orthodox and reconstructionist and whatever it's like kind right. of really yeah. understanding yeah. our own identity within the context of somebody else's civilization correct i i don't know personally sort of how i feel about this but 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 i understand that that's how society around me is, is organized so i'll sort of i'll sort of use that, that language but i think i think something i um something i get from from Israel, where it sort of almost like has a different language that sort of transcends this. So I try and tap into that also. Mm -hmm. um, so there are people who are part of Mizrahi who are not Orthodox. There are people part of our community in the Heights who are not Orthodox. There are people who are, yeah, I, I think uh, sort of see themselves as part of the Jewish story, mm -hmm. part of the Jewish nation. Just so listeners understand, when you say somebody is Orthodox, what does that mean exactly? Right, so usually it's, Say it's a descriptor of their of their practice, though it, it also means other things. We usually practice of of whether they they observe uh, Torah mitzvot. Usually, let's say at least at least the public facing ones, Shabbat, Kashrut. Mm -hmm. um, but it also it also has come to mean um, certain things politically, like um, that when you pray, you pray in a non-egalitarian setting, um, and it means that you also fit into whatever sort of like social political constructs happen to align with with orthodoxy. Um, so for some people that means that means that means more right wing uh, political ideologies. For some people it has to do with uh, I don't know just all these like all these culture wars things hmm. sort of orthodoxy gets intertwined with that. Right. Um, so that's what I try and stay away from. Right, right. It's not something you'd ever want to tackle head on. That's not something you'd ever want to like really address. <laughs> in the community I, I guess not i mean I, I can see by your reaction that that's not where your community is at right now yeah it's also like i don't think i mean, I mean there's something torah halacha that those things i'm happy to talk about but some of these sort of sort of culture political things it's almost like it's almost like a, a distraction from our greater mission no i, I agree uh, especially in this country i see so many especially the last few years with like the trump presidency etc yeah you see so yeah. many jews like it's almost like they forgot the story of Israel and got caught up in like America's internal political battles. Yeah. And that's yeah. so much more of their identity. Right. And like, it, it works. It's definitely important stuff, but, but, but like, you got to sort of take a step back and think about sort of like, which, which stories are, are we characters in? Right. That's really it. You're hitting the nail on the head because I would say that the real distinctions have nothing to do with left, right, religious, or secular. It's really about whether or not a Jew is psychologically living in the paradigm of Jewish history or living in the psychological paradigm of Western civilization in 2021. And there are those of us who straddle both. Like, I actually consider myself somebody who's able to at least walk in both worlds. Um, although I'm clearly, I, I would clearly identify as fully living in Jewish history and, and that being my psychological paradigm, I'm not unable to engage with where the West is at today. Like I understand it, I'm able, I'm fluent in it, so to speak. Right, right. But, but it's not like my real identity. Like it's not the movie I'm living in. Like the movie I'm living in is the, the rebirth of Israel. Right, yeah. So for us, we try to, you know, we look at this through a post-colonial lens and we try to really think about, you know, and challenge the extent to which Jews, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, the extent to which Jews are kind of living and understanding themselves and understanding Jewish issues within the greater ideological paradigm of somebody else's civilization, like some foreign context. And a lot of our own culture, a lot of our own values 
just won't make sense and won't really inspire if we are limited to foreign paradigms. I, I guess the way I would see it, I think there is an assumption people make, especially like self-defined Orthodox Jews, that the other denominations kind of split away and Orthodox Judaism is like our authentic thing. Like that's what we've been doing for thousands of years. That's the Torah of our ancestors. And, and I guess I, I challenge that a little bit because I, I would probably argue that what we call Orthodox Judaism was able to protect and maintain the ritual and legal components of our identity, but it still discarded a lot of other aspects of our identity, the territorial, the national, the, the context, the story. Like, I mean, um, you know, I remember asking, uh, uh, this was actually a, a Rav in Israel, um, a Rosh Hashiva actually, a Rosh Hashiva in Jerusalem, who was coming from more of, I guess what we can call a brisker perspective. And, uh, you know, I asked him at one point, I said, well, how would you define the mission of Israel? Like the, the meta-narrative, like what's the mission of the Jewish people in history? And he knew, this is a Tamil Chacham, he knows a lot of Torah, he knows a lot of Halakha, like they met, the, the guy's like a computer. Uh, but when I asked him that question, like how would you define the mission of the Jewish people in history? He didn't even understand the question. It was like an irrelevant question to him. Wow, and wow. I think that's, that's wow. I guess, where Orthodox went wrong. Um, that that was kind of like made peripheral. And, and like that I think should be central. I think for me, wow. it's like any halakha we, we talk about or any chag or any any festival, any theme in Jewish life that we talk about really needs to be understood within the context of our identity and historic mission. Yeah, I would, I would say I think that's something that, um, something I find Rev Cook does really well is that he, he He'll he'll comment on a on a halacha on a, on, a, on a piece of Torah and show how that halacha is really sort of framing the, the, this whole um, idea of our identity of what it means to be a Jew, what it means to connection with God and the world, and um, it's, it's just like it always. I don't know. There's one simple one where he talks about like there's a halacha that that the Gemara talks about that that you have to pray in a place which has windows, um, and Rav Cook says it's not just a random halacha, but this is saying that when we pray, we have to, our, our prayers can't just be sort of internal in our little uh, four cubits, our little internal world, but our prayers prayers have to be facing the world. We have to see the world when we're praying. We have to know that our prayers are about the, the world around us. Mm -hmm. um, and I think of Cook in, 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 in a lot of his teachings on halacha, he wrote a whole, or besides for all of his philosophy books, he wrote a lot on halacha, but, but he saw halacha as actually a vehicle through which to understand our philosophy and our mission in life as well. Right. I, maybe even we could say the halachot are the, the mitzvot, the, the laws are the finite vehicles through which the divine ideal is expressed in this world. Sure. Like, right. But isn't that like obvious? I mean, I, I guess for some people that's not. Right. For some people, it's not even part of the conversation. Right. Right. You have a lot in your plate. I don't want to add any tasks to your plate but that sounds like you know it, it sounds like something you're uniquely qualified and uniquely positioned to tackle i don't know about that but it's definitely something that i'd like to tackle right um to br bring that lens of cook into orthodoxy into judaism uh, uh, judaism in quotes but right <laughs> jewishness jewish life here yeah that's uh, yeah. for jewish life wow so i hope we'll be able to find areas to cooperate and work together because uh it sounds like we're both on the same page when it comes to some of what needs to happen. But I imagine you're better qualified than I am 
to engage a lot of the Jews who are living here. I, it, it, you might be a little bit more fluent than I am in the language they're speaking or in the context they're living in. I mean, in some ways, that could be just because I live in, in Manhattan. Right. Um, and I've sort of like, not, not, I don't know, forever, but I've sort of, for now, sort of like made my bed in this in, in, in this world. So uh, imagine you see it as shlichut, like you're for a, sure, a, for sure, yeah. So uh, no, it's important work. And uh, where can listeners see more of your work? Is there a website? Uh, way yeah, we, we have some stuff. If you go to rza.org, rza, which stands for Religious Zionists of America, that's our website. We have some some education. I, I just wrote a little piece around. Uh, I just wrote a piece about what it means to be a religious Zionist in America. Uh-huh. Through the lens of the Torah portion we were just reading. Yifeh. So, Hart Levine, thank you so much for joining me. I wish you success in all of the important work that you're involved with. Thanks for uh, having me on, especially on uh, on this very auspicious day. This is Yudah Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Listeners can check out the show notes for this episode by going to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 59.